Okay, well, let's just rip into it. Let's look at verse 1 there. There were some present at that very time. You know, we, we, we need to thank Luke. I'm, I'm off-centered here. Excuse me a moment. I need to thank Luke anyway because sometimes I'm, I'm not sure where I am uh, during uh, the reading of uh, especially the Gospels. You know, are we talking to the same people, not talking to who? What, what is the setting going on here? Well, chapter 13, and if this were a series, you'd probably recognize it, but since it's not, I'll tell you a little bit about chapter 12 because 13 is a continuance of 12. Uh, there were some present at that time, so it's clearly the same people. Uh, you could look at chapter 14, and it begins one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler. So he's changing the setting in 14. Since he's not changing the setting, we know that we're still talking about the same gathers. Uh, so it's worth looking a little bit about what chapter 12 is telling us. Chapter 12 Jesus kind of talks a little harshly. I mean, he, he's not going to let people get away with things they shouldn't be getting away with. He attacks the Pharisees um, very head-on, uh, calling them hypocrites and things like that. In fact, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, is, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisee, Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So he doesn't get very far into chapter 12 before he immediately goes to this hypocrisy talk. He, he is no doubt angry at false teaching. That's why I prayed that the Spirit would lead me. I, he's going to be angry at false teaching today, and I don't want to be part of it. Um, so I'll stick to what the Word says. If I give you my thoughts, then it's on me to tell you these are my thoughts. This is what I think. And... And Paul does the same thing. I mean, he'll he'll go through and say, "When these are my thoughts, not the Lord's," and and then say his little thing, because the Lord decided to record them in Scripture. We can also take it that, yeah, okay, those were your thoughts, but they were accurate. Um, so thousands had gathered, uh, but he spoke to his disciples first, and he went down this threatening road with the the Pharisees, and he taught many other things in this chapter twelve. Um, that were even confrontational, especially against the Jewish leaders. Uh, let's look at verse 49 to just really blow through chapter 12 in a hurry since it's not what we're teaching this morning. Uh, Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth. Oh, that's pretty harsh. Um, and then he says he doesn't need to because it's already been kindled. Uh, so he came into a situation that he already wasn't happy with. Um, verse 54 and 56 is him scolding the Pharisees again. He's also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. So they can read the present times. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So again, there's this anger against... Um, mostly the Pharisees, but also those in the crowd that aren't, aren't uh, really paying attention to this present time, this coming of Christ. So now we can return to chapter 13 
and we see that immediately there's people reporting to him about the the blood uh, that was mingled with the sacrifices and at the hand of Pilate. And you could ask, what is the motivation of these people? It's not the thrust of the passage, but I think it's okay to look at it. These people who are reporting the problem. Well, again, not my thoughts, but a commentary I wrote that I, I can see where he came from. And, and he's saying, look, at the, the people wanted a conquering Messiah, a king, this, this Messiah that would just take over and put Jerusalem at like the top rung of the ladder. And that's not what Jesus is. Jesus is a king. He's even a conquering king, but he wasn't there as an earthly king. He's there as a heavenly king. It's like an admission of we know you're the Messiah, but we're mistaken about what the Messiah is. Um, and this too, Jesus has to correct. He always is correcting wrong thinking. Um, so the question they ask is, or when they told him, they didn't really ask it. He figured out what their question is. He, he, they tell him about this slaughter of Galileans who were sacrificing. And Jesus asked the question, or, or he answers it even though it wasn't asked, and he answered them, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? It's that rating. Did they get COVID because they weren't vaccinated? No, they got COVID because they got COVID. Did they die because they were in deeper sin than all around them? What does Jesus say to this? He answers this rhetorical question with, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You know, I have to back up a minute because I I did want to explain a little bit about where we're going in your outline that you have, and and I forgot a significant part of that. So let's just back up, revisit it, get it out of the way, and then keep on going. Um, I'm going to break this passage down into two sections, and they're both going to say the same thing, that all sin leads to destruction, and evident repentance leads to restoration. So we're going to see in verses 1 and 5, two examples of sin being blamed for a punishment and Jesus correcting the thinking in those. And then in verse 6 and through 9, we're going to look at a parable. And even though it sounds like two teachings, they're really teaching the same thing. Whether it's the words he uses or whether you're just pulling out of it, he is saying, repent or perish. Harsh words repent or perish. It sounds harsh, but you'll see through looking at it closer, doesn't have to be and it not necessarily is. So we have Jesus <clears throat> taking that first example of Galileans dying uh, at the hand of Pilate uh, and some wanting to, as Jesus knows their thoughts, uh, wanting to blame sin for the problem. And Jesus answering that no, all must repent or perish, likewise perishes his words. Um, let's leave that hanging for a minute. Let's look at the second one before we do, because he repeats the same words in verse 5. But verse 4 is um, Jesus 
He's not going to let them rule this conversation. He's not going to let them throw the questions at him. He's going to start asking the questions. And he starts, he, he gives an example that is different, and I'll explain how it's different and maybe why, but he gives this example of 18 dying at the collapse of a tower. In fact, it, it says very clearly, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Well, why is he even bother with the second example if it sounds just like the first example? Well, one of the differences you might be able to put a blame on the Galileans. Maybe they were doing the sacrifice wrong. You know, maybe they um, disobeyed a direct edict of, of um, Pilate. Uh, and Pilate came and punished him. And, and people thinking, well, for crying out loud, he told you not to do it. You did it anyway. You deserve that. You know, well, I, I don't think so. I, I think they were sacrificing to our Lord. That is not in itself a reason to be punished, and it's not in itself a sin. So the, the tower falling at Siloam was a far more innocent thing. I mean, the, the pool of Siloam was this healing pool, so people would gather there. Um, the tower was both a, a provided shade, it also provided a way to elevate and usually the wealthy uh, to, to come off of the ground and, and wait uh, on higher ground, so to speak. Um, but all the people who were there were there for different reasons, and yet they all died. You know, So I think that is why Jesus is saying, okay, you, you want to try and blame all those Galileans for doing something wrong, and therefore it's their sin, and that's why they got the punishment. What about these people? They weren't all doing the same thing. They weren't all caught up in the same sin. So why did they all get equally judged in your mind? So the, the difference is um, fairly simple, but, but important. Um, if you're old enough, you can probably remember the Loma Prieta earthquake that the Cypress structure, we called it, it was, it was Highway 580, uh, a, a twin deck freeway. And the upper deck fell and smashed all the cars that were on the lower deck. It was miraculous that it was not jam-packed with cars. Uh, it usually is. I think it was three to four lanes of cars. Yet, because there was a World Series going on and people were at home trying to get ready to watch this game, fewer people were on that freeway. But there were people on that freeway and they did die. But think it through there were I don't know how many cars say 20 cars and each car with a different driver and perhaps a set of passengers all living very different lives all maybe sinning maybe not maybe repentant maybe not but they all came to the same end you know so it's it's just the same example as what Jesus is giving here probably the more clear example that it is not based on some weird level of sin that you are being judged. There, there are no levels of sin in God's economy, um, but they all, they all hear the same thing, that unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You know, this juxtaposing of, 
of those two events in that light that you know one of them everybody's doing the same thing and the other one nobody is doing the same thing and yet they all perish makes you realize that he's really not talking about perish being dying that that is not the end of their life that the perish here is the subject the perish here is what happens after that well without repentance you've still got this sin on you that is unforgiven and you're going to have to stand in front of the Lord in judgment and in that way you will perish you will not have that eternal life with him that is what is being taught throughout scripture and repeated here now let's talk a little bit about what he is using repent how he is using repent Repent was a huge thrust of Jesus' ministry. In fact, it was probably the primary thrust. Um, Turning from sin and to God is such a big part of the whole Bible, whether it's in word or content, that it, it can't be missed. And it is what the gospel is there to cure. Uh, so just I'm, I'm going to, you don't have to, they're not that long. Jeremiah 15, 19. And... You know, I have this NIV Bible at home. I also have ESV, and uh, I love them both for the way NIV translates and uses the word repent, while ESV translates and uses the word um, return. So return to God, repent, they're the same concept. That, that is what repentance is. You're turning from sin to God. So you're turning. It's a it's a motion. You're leaving sin and you're turning to God. Uh, and if it's very far distance, run fast. Uh, but it says in Jeremiah fifteen nineteen, Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you, and you will stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. So repentance is clear in there that and that goes back to Jeremiah 15 Luke 5 just back a little bit um, Luke 5:32 I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance those are Jesus words that's what he's doing he's not calling sinners um, calling righteous to repentance but sinners he happens to know that nobody's righteous uh, and Matthew 4:17 and this is probably the most direct, this is Christ's purpose. And it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thrust of his teaching. Absolutely. So coming back to Luke 13, let's, let's know, you know, we, we know that there's a, a need to repent. We know that perish is really the standing before God. It's not necessarily an untimely death, or, um, but it is that our passing, we will have this standing before God, either our passing or the coming of Christ again. To um, One way or another, we are going to have to stand in front of God in judgment. And the, the glory, the, the grace of God says, look at Jesus, wash this sin away. You are not going to stand before me guilty of that sin. You may have done that sin, but I am not going to hold you guilty of that sin because that is the price that was paid 
by Jesus. Uh, but let's move on to this parable. How is it going to say the same thing that he just said in those two examples of repent or perish? Well, I, I see that there's a timeline to the care that he provides. And if no evidence of a change, the inevitable destruction will happen. But, but let's, let's hear it directly. Um, I'll admit it that my first few readings of this parable drew out uh, the question of why would this owner of a vineyard, so the guy, that's, that's his business. He, he, he's a vineyard, man, not owner, he's a vineyard owner. And he takes up valuable space to plant a fig tree. I mean, the fig tree is going to cast shade. The shade's not going to be good for the harvest or for the, the growth of the crop, which is grapes. We definitely know something about grapes living in this area. And you can see when, when they're ready to plant a field of grapes, they, they decimate everything that's out there. They prepare the soil and they put down the grapes. Unless there's a heritage oak or something that uh, we can stop some of this turning, uh, it's all going to be gone for the sake of the grape. But this guy, in the business of having vineyards, plants a fig tree. There's going to be a lot of symbolism in this, uh, this very short uh, three verses. And some of it I'll, I'll confidently explain, and some of it I'll more confidently leave it to you to um, kind of sort out yourself, but I'll, I'll give you the clues. Uh, it, no doubt this tree doesn't fit in the vineyard. Now, uh, another commentary, uh, it's, it's said that frequently fig trees refer to the nation of Israel, and they might. Uh, I, I'm even leaving room for that as I continue. So fig trees on this hand say, we're, we're talking about a nation. On my own reading, I see this lone fig tree in a vineyard. So a lot of vines and one fig tree. So I'm seeing an individual. And it may be you, maybe me, maybe somebody that's listening to Jesus a couple thousand years ago. But the symbolism could be that, listen, there's all this sin going around me, and I don't have to be part of it. I can be that fig tree. I can stand alone in Christ without needing to fit in you know I can't just I'll pretend I'm a vine it's not gonna work I'm a fig tree I'm gonna produce figs but not this tree this tree's not producing figs it it could be that beyond all that symbolism is a very simple lesson he could be using the fig in the vineyard because it's a very common expression of peace and wealth that's used by Israel. Uh, I'll show you what I mean. First Kings 4.25 And all Judah and all sides around him from Dan to Beersheba every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So Solomon had a fantastic kingdom and Israel was rich and they weren't threatened by neighboring nations. So they use this expression under the shade of the fig tree and of the vines. So it's, it's an expression that was used then. Micah 4.4, we have the prophecy of the uh, uh, days to come where Zion would be the house of the Lord, where swords are beat into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Um, 
it was it was all an explanation of you know the war is gone that there will be a peace that Israel would know and in verse 4 it says but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree so they're using that expression again Zechariah 3 the vision of Joshua the high priest and it's the Lord of hosts speaking to Joshua and he says in verse 9 and 10 and I will remove this iniquity of this land in a single day and in that day declares the Lord of hosts every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree so maybe all Jesus is trying to say is I want to tell you a story about peace and comfort you know that you're not um, going to have to deal with sin as you've been dealing with sin there will be a time of peace with God so it's a common phrase um, so let's keep in mind this this reference of a, a prophecy of peace on this side and on the other hand this question of perhaps it's a nation perhaps it's an individual and then let's put these together and and look at it in that light of of which direction is he going and and I'll give you an answer before I even give you the evidence this answer of is this fig tree supposed to represent the Jews the Jewish nation or as individuals and the answer is you can write it down yes the answer is yes it's either and it's both okay and what about the vineyard I think the vineyard is the kingdom it's it's not this oh there there's these sin areas and the not sin areas I think Jesus is talking about uh, about heaven the kingdom of, of whether uh, the kingdom that's come or the kingdom to be I think he's talking about the kingdom uh, and not really very different is somebody else's impression that the vineyard represents God so you got this fig tree that's not producing fruit inside of a of God's desire that it does. Um, I think the tree and the presence of the vineyard, uh, being the nation or the individual, uh, is being in the presence of God or in heaven. So whether you interpret it as the kingdom is heaven or kingdom is God, I don't think you're going to be very far off with, with either one of them. Uh, and then Jesus continues his parable with the owner coming to inspect the tree and, and saying that uh, it doesn't have any fruit. It's not producing what it's intended for. And might the owner itself be God? You know, that is what God's going to be looking for. He's going to be looking for our obedience. Um, or you wonder, is it maybe Jesus? Well, that one in itself is, is it God or is it Jesus? And remembering that God is, or Jesus is God, again, you don't have to beat yourself up over that one, whether you want to interpret it either way. Um, I think God the Father is the one that makes sense to me. Uh, he knows the state of his chosen people. He knows whether they're producing fruit and what he also knows is that they're not you know they're not acting like a chosen people they're they're acting like all the other people uh, which disappoints him um, they're not showing any sign of repentance for sin you know so if they were producing fruit they'd be showing a sign he gets to a tree that's not producing any fruit it, 
It doesn't even leave a sign that it is a fig tree. I mean, other than the leaves, but it's not producing any of the fruit that, that he intended for it to produce. And I think in that perspective, it, it's e easier to consider that this is a condemnation or a, a, a teaching on a nation not necessarily an individual. And individuals make up the nation, so yes, individuals are always involved, but I think the bigger one is that Israel itself is not producing the fruit, that they're not as a whole in a, a visible sign of repentance. In verse seven, uh, the owner wants the tree cut down. He's given the tree enough time. Uh, he's given it three years, and that three years could represent all the time that God has shown his patience. I, th I think it is a, a, a picture of the patience that God shows. Uh, yet, the, the vine dresser, the person taking care of the tree, says, let's give it one more year. Now, it's not three years. It's not, yeah, my patience is big, but it's not big enough to last forever. So you got one year to clean up your act. So you've got... Uh, this very long time of I'm being patient, patient, but I am going to tell you, I am going to judge. And the vine dresser simply delays that judgment, so to speak, by a year. You know, what does a year really mean in time? I, I, I can't say. But it's not saying that you've got an unlimited amount of time to repent. Uh, in, in this description, it, it says a year. Um, in Luke 3, 7, it is, you almost hear this passage in it, but it's really a description of this uh, God's judgment. And Luke 3, 7, uh, 3, 7 through 9, and, and listen for God's judgment, but uh, also how it's almost on a perfect parallel with her passage. This is while John was baptizing, and remember the Pharisees came and he called them a, a brood of vipers, uh, who warned you to flee from this wrath? Uh, uh, but it says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up children from these stones for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not... Or, that does bear fruit, every tree that doesn't bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So he's even using the same images. He's talking about repent, and he's talking about without it, this tree's coming down. Bear the fruit of repentance, or the axe is already at the root, and it's going to be thrown in the fire. So there's a lot of judgment if there isn't a repentance. And the worker in the parable pleads for another year. Uh, and if it doesn't produce fruit then, then fine, cut it down. Uh, so we are introduced to this new character, the vine dresser. And who is this? Well, I will say that I think it's Jesus. And that's me thinking it, and I, I'm feeling pretty good about it, but I want you to read it and, and meditate over it and pray on it and see if you come up with the same thing. I'm ready to say that this, this vine dresser caring for the, the tree is Jesus feeding his people. You know, he was going to dig around it, and he was going to put manure in there, and he was going to feed and, and, and enrich the soil and uh, for the sake of the tree. And, and I think that is the ministry of Christ, that uh, he came to, to show us 
are false, but he also came to save, save the tree, um, but he came to save us. He, he wanted to give man an opportunity to turn from sin, follow him, and produce fruit. In Acts 26, Paul was delivering his defense to the king of Agrippa and said in verse 19 and 20, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Performing deeds, keeping in repentance, it's the same as fruit and repentance, the fruits of repentance. They're, they're the same concepts. So if after the care, the fruit is seen and the tree survives, it's the evidence of the repentance. But without fruit, they're going to George Washington that thing. They're going to cut down that cherry tree. You know, they're, they're, it's, which by the way, sidebar. The play Hamilton, I don't know how many paid very attention, very close attention to, I'm not great with music, but, but this is one I caught, that George Washington in, in the play Hamilton, it was written about him that what he really desired was to rest under the shade of his fig tree. Is that cool? That's cool. So George Washington cuts down a tree and he rests in the shade of a fig tree. He knows chapter 13, I tell you. Um, but... You know, this, this parallel of is it a nation or is it an individual, I, I think is starting to lean, tip the scales toward the individual. That, you know, this, this idea of repentance, a nation can repent as a nation, but it's, it's more difficult, it's less easy to see. Um, and the, the fruit that is produced seems more individual. So I think we are in this parallel starting to move away from looking at it as a nation and start to look at at as individuals okay um, so the same message that we got that that ended those tragedies this message of of repent or perish um, it, it it's still happening that's why I say the the, the parable is just a repeat of the two examples. They're both trying to teach you the same thing, this repent or perish, show fruit or lose the tree. You know, the, the losing of the tree is the destruction. That's the perish part. Showing the fruit is the evidence of repentance. Oh, one, one more small thing about that one year of grace that is given to this tree. And this is just something that I have watched um, in my time as a Christian and watching other Christians, is that your your moment of belief, and, and some of us can't even point to an exact moment. I'm on that list. It was more of a, a growing thing. But the, the fruit that I produce, the, the earliest signs of that fruit, I'm going to call blossoms. They're not really the fruit. A good friend who's passed away now, he told me in his conversion, and it was one of those instantaneous, uh, that his salty language ended. He, he stopped swearing instantly. It was just cold turkey. And that could be a sign of repentance or a fruit of repentance. And certainly, 
um, a good thing. I, I'm glad that he no longer took the Lord's name in vain and, and that sort of thing. But I don't think it's the, the big evidential fruit that we're really talking about here. The, the fruit we're really talking about here is significant, makes a difference, and probably is more than making a difference in just your life. It, it's going to be seen by others. Uh, But it is summed up, whether it's in the parables or, or in the parable or the two examples, that, that same message that all sin is leading to destruction and visible repentance is leading to restoration. Jesus doesn't give a lot of options in this passage. It's repent or perish. And in first reading, that sounds hard. You know, or harsh. It, it's repent or perish. It's like, Lord, you, you got to have something else for me. But if you slow down and hear it for what it's saying, it's not harsh. I, I think about it as focusing on the positive instead of the negative. If, if just about any sport you could do this with golf, it's seeing the lake. But but I'll take basketball. You got somebody, a, a Steph Curry, it doesn't even have to be Steph Curry. It could be Caleb Cunningham. It's an excellent shot, by the way. And, and the thing is, he's got a positive attitude. When he lets go and releases that ball, he's got every confidence that that thing's going to go nothing but net. He, he is really sure that he's going to make that shot because he is focusing on the positive. He's probably even celebrating in his mind, this could be great. That ball's going to go through, Everybody, the crowds are going to cheer and applaud. And then you got somebody like me who can't play basketball to save his life. And when I get ready to shoot, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to miss. And I focus on the negative, and the prophecy comes true. I mean, I'm not going to say I clunk it off the front of the rim because I probably didn't even touch the rim. It, I'm not good at that game. Um, but you can see that positive that, you know, this is what I'm going to focus on. I'm going to focus on making that shot, or the negative, I'm going to focus on missing the shot. Well, the negative in this case is if we don't repent, we're going to perish. And that sounds harsh. But the positive thinker, the one who wants to turn this, will realize that it says, if I do repent, I'll never perish. And that's the one I'm going to focus on, because it's not basketball. This is life. This is eternity. And this is a promise from God. Oh, I'm going to grab that. It's great. It's what I love about God. He gives me this wonderful opportunity to repent and never perish. But it's not always all that easy. The, the takeaway from the passage is very clear. Repent. And except for a little bit of the parable with him caring for the tree, Jesus caring for the tree. Uh, Jesus doesn't talk clearly about himself being the way to this repentance. You know, it's, it's really reading your, your Bible in entirety. I mean, you might be able to grasp that little part about, you know, without the vine dresser caring for that tree, that tree still isn't going to produce fruit. Well, that's Jesus in us and, and helps us produce this fruit. Um, you will have the strength to do this by turning to Jesus. All right? He is the way. 
And, and what does that look like? How do you turn from sin? Uh, can, it, can it be as simple as I'm going to turn from sin and turn to God? Well, to say it, it could be that simple. And to even put it in your head that that's what you want to do can be that simple. But it really depends on how you want to try and define simple in this case. Um, is there going to be discomfort when you do this? Yeah, I'll promise you that. I've been through it. It's not always easy. And not all the time will the discomfort not be without sustaining joy. But it will be uncomfortable. Will it be costly? Probably. It, it could end up costing you a lot. It could be costing friendships with... Well, in fact, I, I know of a family who is split apart on this. It costs siblings. It, it, it can be a very high price. Will it make you popular with your peers? Doubt it. Not in the short run. Uh, in fact, God will probably provide you different peers. Maybe not. Maybe he'll want you to hang around the, the crusty peers who, who need to turn from sin themselves, and he'll use you as the vehicle. And if you're a good vehicle, you'll be producing fruit. You'll be showing signs of your repentance. And speaking of which, how do you repent? Well, it starts with a choice, and that choice is choosing to repent. And that's the simple part. But again, be very careful with this word simple. I mean, it's not complicated, but it may be hard. Uh, Satan doesn't want you to turn from sin. He, he wants you to keep you in the bonds of sin, his lies. And, and he'll do everything he can. He'll, do, he'll probably double the effort when he sees that you're ready to turn away from him. He'll let you just play in the corner with your sin and be satisfied and work on somebody else. But as soon as he sees you trying to leave that corner and trying to leave that sin, he will focus attention on you. So he will make it hard. And you will find sin creeping at your door again. Right? You just have to keep turning from it. So if you take that first step and mentally make the choice to run from sin, well, then step two is... Stop sinning. You know, you don't, it's not simply a choice of here's a sin and I'm going to run from it. Well, I got to stop doing it in order to run from it. Or I'm just loading it up on my hip and I'm carrying a heavy load. You know, so stop it and sin no more. Again, sounds a lot harder than it's easy as I said that. But here's the good news it's the good news, it's the gospel of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is there for you. The Holy Spirit, even before he indwells you, will help convict you of sin. And that conviction isn't just about, you are guilty, you are guilty, you are guilty. That conviction is, here's the sin. There it is. That's what the sin is. That's what you want to get rid of. That's what the Holy Spirit will do for all of us. And if you're that believer who's got that Spirit indwelling them, there all the time, to access, I mean, often I pray, probably daily, big part of my prayer is, Lord convicted me of my sins. It's an important part of the prayer. If you don't know your sins, they're hard to turn from. And it may be hard to identify them all, but the Spirit will do that for you. I'll tell you what the prayer isn't. It's Lord uh, expose my sin. It's not Hey, all my friends, 
why don't you tell me how I'm sinning? And while you're telling me how I'm sinning, why don't you go ahead and rate those sins so I know what kind of punishment I need. That's not the prayer. The prayer is, Lord, expose my sin so I can turn from it and turn to you. Repentance is turning from sin toward God. I've said that. It is God who you've sinned against. Not those people that I'm not praying to. It's the Lord. It's between you and the Lord. It was between David and the Lord. I mean, after adultery against and, and murder of Uriah, what did David pray? I mean, here, Uriah just had, David had messed with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And then Uriah was sent out to be killed in battle in an unfair way by the order of the king, King David. That's, that's bad stuff. Uriah was, it just was so unfair to him. But what does David say? Lord, that is you alone to whom I have sinned. So that's what God is teaching us. And if God is teaching us that it's, a, it's against him alone that we've sinned, do we really have to worry whether somebody who catches COVID had a vaccine? No, it's about God. So keep it there. Don't keep it. Don't do God's job of judgment. Be compassionate. Show fruits. Show love. Be, go to the person who's got COVID and say, how can I help? Can, can we as a church accept that we're going to have some guest pastors for a while? Well, for the sake of Tim Swanson, yes, we can. And it's going to be showing fruit. And if we grow in his absence and, and he comes back to see a stronger, healthier church and individuals, what a blessing for him. So there are so many fruits to our repentance. And if, our, if we need to repent from a sin of judgment, let's turn immediately. You know, I said that the good news is the good news. It's the gospel. Through the, the, the reason is the gospel brings you the power of Christ. There is no power greater. It is greater than sin. It is greater than Satan. It is greater than any problem that you have. Jesus is greater. You can almost end it there. Put whatever you want out on the other end. Jesus is greater. You ever thought about this? A promise of the gospel is being in Jesus. So he's helping you do these things. So if he's helping you produce fruit, if he's helping you turn from sin, is he on some sort of pleasure trip for himself? I mean, if, if he wants to see repentance, and he's the one that's performing the, the repentance in you, then he's just self-satisfying himself, right? No, he's not. I mean, he may be joyed, but it is not a self-pleasure trip. It is not about what... It, it is him doing it, but it's not actually what that is about. He is sanctifying. When he's doing that, when, when you give yourself up to him and you let Jesus do the work, he is sanctifying the immature. He is, he is getting you to rely on him. And the more that happens, the more it's not a self-reliance and it is a Christ reliance, the more you are wholly reliant on him, that reliance, that total agreement with him, 
even more than the good works you're producing, it's glorifying to him. That is the point of it. It's glorifying to him. So when you turn from sin, when you repent, and you'll never perish through it, the glory goes to Jesus. And it's all about us glorifying Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are appreciative of your word. We love that you teach us in your word. We love that we have to struggle to see what it's even saying. Lord, I pray that we get it right. And what we don't get right on our own, we get right through your spirit. Your spirit will interpret both the word and our response. And you will make sure that each of us, according to needs, is, is cared for, uh, is, is taught the, the right teaching and hears the right teaching and learns the right teaching. And that right teaching, Lord, is, is you and your word, your Holy Spirit, either through the word or through the conviction of sins, strengthening us, feeding us, cultivating us, uh, finding a way to produce fruit in us, giving all of the world to see the fruits of our repentance. Lord, your message is clear. Repent or perish. And it is not a difficult message. It is a blessing. And I pray that each of us accepts that blessing and that we continue to go through our days and weeks and uh, all time to come glorifying you through a reliance on you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.